Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Mary Harris, WNYC's health editor. For six months, we focused on cancer and how many of us are touched by it. One in two men, one in three women will get this diagnosis. This piece aired on The Brian Lehrer Show. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. And when my next guest won the Nobel Prize in 1989, in his acceptance speech, he said, we have not slain our enemy, the cancer cell. We have only seen our monster more clearly. Dr. Harold Varmus joins us now to tell us how much the science of genomics has accomplished in the treatment of cancer in the 25 years since he won the prize for his discovery of the oncogene. For another few days, he's director of the National Cancer Institute, but come April, he will join the New York Genome Center and Weill Cornell Medical College, and you'll see him in the documentary airing on PBS next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday called Ken Burns Presents Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies. Dr. Harold Varmus, welcome back to WNYC, and welcome back to NYC. Brian, thank you very much, and thank you for that brief and generous uh, description. So how close are we today to slaying the enemy, the cancer cell? Well, we're closer. Uh, I think it's very difficult to give a number to it, but but there's no doubt we've had um, many recent successes based on our understanding of what genetic damage has been done to create a cancer cell. And indeed, some of the stories you've been airing, and you and others have been airing on, on NPR, have illustrated uh, some, of the, some of the remarkable events that have occurred. For example, as part of WNYC's Living Cancer series, which is a companion project to the PBS Ken Burns documentary, we heard on Morning Edition today the story of a woman with brain cancer who was having a miraculous recovery while taking a drug mostly used for skin cancer. Explain how genomics has led to that kind of a story. Well, the thing that's really remarkable about that story is that uh, by doing a test, which is actually not all that expensive if you think about it, that is sequencing a large part of, of the genome in that patient's tumor, uh, uh, the scientists who were analyzing her cancer were able to find an abnormality for which uh, a drug already exists, uh, used largely in the treatment of melanoma, skin cancer, uh, to give her a very dramatic remission. Now, looked at from one perspective, it's still true that most patients with glioblastoma multiforme, this virulent brain cancer that she's suffering from, don't do very well. Uh, and yet what this shows us is that in a significant number of, of patients, by looking carefully through uh, the, the large volume of information present in a cancer genome, one can some, sometimes discern uh, an abnormality for which uh, a, re a remedy may be at hand or may be developed. This will occur with increasing frequency over time, just as has occurred in other major changes in, in the way we uh, deliver health care. Does that mean that the focus of cancer treatment might change from where the cancer is, I have lung cancer, I have pancreatic cancer, whatever it is, to a different kind of profiling of a cancer? Absolutely. I think that uh, in time, virtually every patient who has a cancer that can't be removed entirely by surgery is going to have a genetic analysis of some kind done routinely. Indeed, that is one of my own goals in, in returning to New York to try to see to help make that happen throughout uh, throughout the region. Um, there is, as you say, uh, a new approach to cancer. We know cancers are very complex, not just because they occur in many organs, but because each individual cancer uh, has a fingerprint of genetic change 
that uh, will dictate, um, will first of all reflect how it arose. It will also dictate uh, the likely outcome, the likely response to all kinds of therapies. And we simply have to understand uh, what those uh, genetic signatures mean. For example, there's a tremendous amount of interest these days in new forms of immunotherapy using the immune system and modulating it in interesting ways to, um, to boost an immune response against cancer. I'm quite convinced that examining the genome uh, is going to have a major role in determining who's likely to respond to which kind of immunotherapy as well. This is very much on President Obama's radar screen, as I'm sure you know. He has announced a $215 million precision medicine initiative, and cancer is the first target. Here's 40 seconds of the president. Doctors have always recognized that every patient is unique. Uh, and doctors have always tried to tailor their treatments as best they can to individuals. You can match a blood transfusion to a blood type. That was an important discovery. What if matching a cancer cure to our genetic code was just as easy, just as standard? What if figuring out the right dose of medicine was as simple as taking our temperature? And that's the promise of precision medicine delivering the right treatments at the right time, every time, to the right person. The right treatment at the right time, every time, to the right person. Is the president overstating it a bit? How hopeful should we be? Well, I think that is, that is the goal. But uh, one has to also remember that while um, the changes that he's advocating are increasingly apparent and, and uh, and, and within reach, um, especially in the domain of cancer, where we're understanding the genetic determinants of the disease um, at a great rate, uh, there are many places in medicine where we simply don't yet have the tools to do what uh, he's prescribing, even even we know what's wrong. Uh, a good example is the discovery of, of the genetic damage that causes sickle cell disease, which occurred uh, over 60 years ago. Uh, we do have some ways to treat sickle cell disease, but we don't yet have the, the kind of magic bullets that seems to be referred to. And he knows that. I mean, he's very well schooled in what the medicine's all about. Um, but uh, I think we, we, we who have been um, trying to comb through literally thousands of tumors, as the National Cancer Institute and the Human Genome Institute have done over the last several years, uh, know we have a tremendous amount of information, information that we can increasingly uh, investigate with com com computer tools. But that doesn't mean we're going to have drugs that, that, uh, that rectify the situation that we can describe with such, uh, uh, with such precision. And not everyone gets their cancer sequence now, I understand. It's usually something you do if your cancer is advanced or if you don't have a lot of options or if you haven't responded to regular treatments like chemotherapy or radiation. Why wouldn't it make more sense to sequence a tumor as the first course of action, given the knowledge that you've been explaining here? Well, I think uh, that that is uh, what's going to be the, the eventual outcome. But uh, things move in, in steps here. And I remember very clearly only uh, a decade ago when some of the first mutations that uh, drive lung cancer were discovered. And um, it was apparent that at least one of those, now actually several, uh, uh, provide a therapeutic opportunity because a drug was available that would put virtually every patient with that mutation into a remission. But 
the technology was not widely disseminated. The way in which it was regulated uh, and used by by states and by others, um, and uh, the the costs uh, were calculated in. Um, and uh, unfortunately, these transformations do lag behind discovery. And one of my personal goals, and in, uh, in, as I come back to New York for uh, uh, to, to work in this sector, is to be sure that uh, that we respond more rapidly to the possibility of. Uh, of using um, these tools to to make outcomes better uh, does need to be pointed out that there are many conventional therapies that work very well for certain cancers. I mentioned surgery before. We have there are very strong track records for radiotherapy in certain diseases, and in some of those contexts, it may not be critical to carry out an additional test, which does does cost money, and um, the, the cost of health care, as you know, is going to be a determinant here. So I think we do have to assess uh, cost and benefit, but uh, as the costs of, of sequencing come down, and as we have, you know, sequencing is a, is a word, but there are actually a, a multiplicity of technologies that are used uh, in making a decision about uh, what kind of sequencing to do? Should you look at a few genes, the genes that are most commonly implicated in that kind of cancer? Should you look at the, a small repertoire? Should you look at uh, the entire genome, most of which is actually not encoding proteins, but nevertheless can sometimes reveal things that are of um, uncertain significance now but might be significant in the future? Indeed, one of the things that we are focused on at the National Cancer Institute is how we uh, aggregate a lot of information, which, including information that's not clinically uh, useful at the moment, to create a large da database of genomic and clinical information that could be interpreted usefully later on. This is WNYC FM HD and AM New York, WNJT FM 88.1 Trenton, WNJP 88.5 Sussex, WNJY 89.3 Netcong, and WNJO 90.3 Tom's River. We are New York and New Jersey Public Radio. My guest is the head of the National Cancer Institute, Dr. Harold Varmus, part of our Living Cancer series, uh, and he is one of the founders of the science of genomics, which, as we've been hearing, is coming on as uh, a better alternative for many people to chemotherapy or radiation or, in some cases, surgery. But there are limitations to the effectiveness of this kind of genomic treatment. In this morning's piece on Morning Edition, Dr. Hyman from Sloan Kettering, which he used to head, gets asked whether the targeted drug will keep working for a patient named Marianne Anselmo and her brain tumor. This is his answer. Every patient is different in how long it works. Um, we all have patients that have been on these drugs for years, but I don't know. I mean, I think if I was being honest, eventually our expectation would be that it would stop working. So why aren't these drugs always durable if they work at first? Are tumors that adaptable? Well, Brian, I'm glad you, you played that uh, really excellent quotation from Dr. Hyman because he does bring up what is one of the great problems. Even when a patient has a mutation for which we have a drug, as was true in this case, uh, in a large number of patients, and it varies from disease to disease and gene to gene and drug to drug, uh, there will be a the, um, the appearance of what we call secondary drug resistance. Uh, what that indicates is a number of things. First of all, there are ways for the cell to figure out how to bypass the influence of the drug. Secondly, and very important from a biological perspective, cancers are evolving. They're like uh, a, a small ecosystem in which mutations are continuing to occur, 
And in the face of a drug being administered, there is a selective pressure for the cells that can evade the effects of that drug to grow out and dominate the tumor. And that happens in a very large segment of cases. In one form of adult leukemia, where uh, the, the drug quite well known now called Gleevec has had an extraordinary record in controlling the disease, uh, resistance is not all that frequent. And moreover, when it does occur, we have second-line drugs, additional drugs that can counter the effects of, uh, the, of, a, of uh, a change in the cell that allows it to resist Gleevec. So I'm hopeful that we're going to make a lot of progress here. One of the things that's fundamental and part of the president's um, uh, precision medicine initiative is to understand um, more profoundly uh, why, why tumors become resistant to drugs. Um, we're trying to do that using um, model systems uh, by doing additional sequencing on tumors um, after the after the tumors become resistant to drugs, um, trying to make better use of combination therapies. Think about how we treat HIV. We don't use a single drug because the HIV virus uh, is undergoing mutation at a high rate and often becomes resistant to a single drug. But it's difficult for the virus to become resistant to several drugs all at once. And that is a a strategy that will increasingly be employed uh, as we as we change the way we treat cancer patients. So, a lot more research is involved in in in, uh, in doing this uh, cancer initiative uh, under the president's new new plan. Mr. Cam in New Rochelle, you're on WNYC with Dr. Harold Varmus. Hello. Yes. Uh, good morning, uh, gentlemen. Uh, we've heard a lot about genes and malformed genes. I think, number one, isn't it true that these are not mutations? Uh, these are not like um, blood mutations or things that turn up because the species wouldn't last if we had a lot of mutations. These come from toxins in the environment. Air pollution, Agent Orange produce a lot of second-generation mutations and malformations. Uh, dioxin in the St. Louis produce, I think, also some genetic malformations. Shouldn't we also keep our, uh, and living in brownfields, generation after generation, or areas of high air pollution, uh, shouldn't we keep our eye on the environment here as a way to avoid the... the, the uh, yeah, a great, great question. And in in the context, go ahead, go ahead, Dr. Varmus, go ahead. Yeah, well, thank you for bringing up some of these issues because they're often uh, points of confusion in the public mind. Let me clarify a few things. First of all, when we're talking about mutations in cancer, in the vast majority of cases, we're talking about cancers that occur specifically uh, in the cancer cell, not in the germline. These are not. We do have problems with with hereditary mutations in cancer, and Angelina Jolie just has made uh, quite clear to the public uh, what the effect of those uh, those mutations that are inherited and confer cancer risk might mean. But the mutations I've been referring to largely in this conversation are mutations that occur in our our adult cells, that, and they are true mutations. But mutations occur for various reasons. Sometimes they occur simply because in the difficult process of, of duplicating a cell, undergoing cell division, mistakes happen, and those mistakes are mutations, and they, they are very hard to prevent. There are also mutations that occur in response to exposure 
what we call mutational agents or carcinogenic agents, and those can range from from various toxins in the environment to um, uh, to drugs that are taken for for cancer therapy, for example, exposure to sunlight, exposure to the many carcinogens present in tobacco smoke. One of the interesting things that's become emergent as we sequence more and more tumors is that these these uh, carcinogenic um, environmental and uh, or behavioral um, exposures uh, do leave a fingerprint behind, a kind of signature. And you can now look at a tumor and make a pretty good assessment of what kind of, uh, of exposures um, the patient may have had that contribute to the high mutation rates that's seen in, uh, in uh, most tumors. So if your major discovery of the oncogene revealed that the potential for cancer lies within us, a gene can get turned on and become the driver of cancer. But now we're talking about research to turn it off once the cancer expresses itself. Why couldn't there be more research on preventing cancer genomically from starting in the first place, stop that gene from being turned on after an exposure? So let me clarify one thing, Brian. So this is not just a matter of turning genes on and off. Um, What uh, our, our work and work of many other colleagues over the course of the last 30 or 40 years have shown is that there is a set of genes in our genome. Our genomes contain roughly uh, 20,000 or so uh, genes that make proteins, and a, a relatively few of those, perhaps a few hundred, seem to be particularly likely to contribute to cancer, not simply when they're turned on, as the, our listeners may know, uh, of our 20,000 genes, uh, only a subset, perhaps 20 or 30 percent, are actually turned on active, being read out in an ESS cell type. But these normal genes that carry out important cellular functions can contribute to carcinogenesis most commonly when they undergo some kind of mutation. That may be a a deletion, it may be a change in the code that uh, dictates which amino acids are present in the, in the protein, um, changing the behavior of the protein that's being made. Um, and uh, I think I do tend to emphasize um, uh, that, that uh, there is opportunity here for thinking more constructively about how, um, how we do prevention. Prevention is much preferable to treatment doesn't get the publicity it should get, but uh, but preventing a cancer is obviously better than 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 simply waiting for one to appear and then treating it. Uh, I think that the what we're learning from looking at the mutational profile of individual cancers is what kind of agents are in the environment, what kinds of changes occur in cells to contribute to an a, we call an endogenous, a cell-based mutational uh, uh, event. Um, and these things can be very usefully engaged in, in trying to uh, develop better ways to prevent cancer. Before you go, um, I want to do a favor for a listener uh, who knew you were coming on and that you used to be the head of Sloan Kettering, a listener who complained to me the other day that if she doesn't like <clears throat> doesn't like her doctor at Sloan Kettering, she was told she can't switch to another one on the staff. Or if she goes to get treatment elsewhere, they don't allow you to come back. Is the Sloan Kettering protocol that strict? And if so, is there a medical purpose in that? Well, first of all, I'm not going to speak to Sloan Kettering uh, procedures. Now I've been gone there for five years. But in general, um, at, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, people are treated 
they have an individual doctor, but they're treated by teams that uh, are uh, team that composed of people in many different disciplines focused on uh, different types of disease. And uh, those groups uh, make joint decisions and, and, uh, and undertake uh, uh, um, a, a multi-person deliberation. Uh, but I, I really am not, it would not be appropriate for me to speak about uh, hospital practice uh, five years after I left. Dr. Harold Varmus won a Nobel Prize in 1989 for his study of genomics. He has headed the, the, uh, the National Cancer Institute, but come next month he will join the New York Genome Center and Weill Cornell Medical College and continue the work that he's been describing here. Thank you so much for joining us. Brian, thank you very much. And listeners, tune in to All Things Considered later today to hear that WNYC Living Cancer story we talked about or hear it at wnyc.org slash cancer. And tune in next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday to see Dr. Varmus in the documentary Ken Burns Presents Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies. And we continue to talk about cancer now, um, and we're going to go on to the question, what is proper cancer etiquette? We've just heard that in the future it's possible that people will be living longer with cancer. Great news. But what do you say to those people when they're your friends or relatives with cancer year after year? A prolonged life can mean protracted treatment with long-term complications, a tough situation for patients, obviously, and also tough for families and all of us to know how to be supportive for the long haul. Here's a clip from another living cancer story about Dixie, a woman who has had stage 4 ovarian cancer for 15 years. This is her son, Mark. You can't function for 15 years with every six months going into alert mode. You just can't physically and emotionally do that. So what do you do? How do you support a person who's been living with cancer for a really long time? Do you act like they're close to death at all times? Do you never ask them about it because you don't want to bring it up and force them to focus on it? What do you say when you do talk about it? Joining us now is Susan Gubar, Distinguished Emerita Professor of English at Indiana University and the author of Memoir of a Debulked Woman, a book about her own long-term experience with ovarian cancer, which she also writes about in her Living with Cancer column for the New York Times. Susan Gubar, welcome back to WNYC. Thank you very much. And so, listeners, we want to hear from you on this topic. <laughs> You're invited to call 212-433-WNYC. Have you had cancer maybe for a long time? Tell us what people said to you that was probably meant to be supportive, but it was actually upsetting or dispiriting, or what were some of the right things that people said? What felt good and supportive? I realize everybody's different in this respect, um, but in this new world of chronic being a can- uh, cancer being a chronic disease, in other words, going on for a long time, um, help people to be as helpful as they can. Call 212-433-WNYC, 433 9692, or tweet at us using the hashtag cancer etiquette, hashtag cancer etiquette. And Susan, as calls are coming in, you told us off the air that one of the upsetting things that people have said to you was, you look great and you'll beat this. Why is that upsetting? Well, I think that there's some kind of denial going on in a response like that. Um, People say, I'm so glad about the surgery that they got it all. 
Well, if if they got it all, why would we be going from surgery to chemotherapy or radiation? <clears throat> so there's a, a kind of sense of uh, congratulations. I'm so glad you're cancer-free. Um, there's a, a denial implicit in that kind of response, just as in other kinds of responses, there's an implicit blaming going on. Well, let's uh, stay with that example. Let's say okay. somebody has surgery and they got it, whatever that means, with whatever <laughs> margins, um, but as a precaution, as I gather happens quite frequently, they'll give you follow-up chemo or radiation. What should somebody say to that patient? Well, I think, you know, I'm not used to giving advice so much as analyzing what's actually done and said, but I, I, I suspect that the interrogative is better than the declarative. I think asking is better than telling. Uh, so how are you feeling? How do you, do you feel it was successful? Are you upbeat about it or do you feel depressed? I think questioning is always easier than um, advising. Advice and um and, and explaining for the patient is a way of taking away the patient's words. Let's take a phone call. Mara in Fairfield, Connecticut. You're on WNYC. Hi, Mara. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for taking my call. And, Brian, happy anniversary, and I adore your show, and I'm, I, I just love the topics that you pick. Thank you so much. Um, so my question, and it's it's to anyone who wants to respond to this, I've been hearing the term debulking a lot recently, and it it, it makes me want to crawl out of my skin. Um, I just, if, if it were a man having a having a surgery that was removing the testicles and the bladder, would they feel comfortable using a term like debulking? It's we're removing ovaries and and the uterus. Um, it's even more severe than a hysterectomy, and the term seems so cold and clinical to me. And I'm just really glad that that we're talking about this because I have been wanting to ask that question. And that is the title of your book, Susan, Memoir of a Debulked Woman. So what does the word mean to you? Well, what the word means is uh, exactly what what your call-in person suggested, taking out the uterus, the ovaries, very often the appendix, uh, the fallopian tubes, parts of the intestine. It's really a kind of gutting of the patient. And I think it is one of the ugliest words I have ever heard in the English language. It makes it sound as if women are bulky, yes, and uh, they have to somehow be debulked. Um, it's it's a it's a terrible uh, word, and it's a it's a horrific operation, in part because ovarian cancer doesn't have a detection tool, so that it's often found in late stages. So it is a form of gutting. Mara, thank you very much. And would you like to see a different word used, which is? part of the caller's point, I think. Well, I think that, um, you know, surgeons call it the mother of all surgeries. Um, I'm not sure that any word would actually um, sugarcoat uh, the massive amount of, um, of organs that are taken out of the body in this particular operation. I'm not sure that changing the word would change the reality. Leslie and Edison, you're on WNYC. Hello, Leslie. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I had lung cancer and I had surgery for it in August. They removed part of my lung, and I had two things to say. One is that two people made a point after my surgery of telling me a, a very specific stories about either friends or family members that they had 
who had similar surgeries, you know, uh, partial lung removal for, for cancer, and were alive and well 18 and 20 years later. And they both gave me enough, you know, specifics to their situations that I, I knew they weren't just telling me a story. They were, they were really true and honest, and I found those very encouraging. Um, the second thing is most of us cancer patients really hate the term cancer survivor because it has an implication that the people who died of it already somehow did something wrong. It was like their fault. You know, we toughed it out. We won somehow because we were stronger and, the, you know, we survived and they didn't. That, it's just so nonsensical uh, and, and ridiculous. And, and nobody knows if they're a cancer survivor. Once you've had cancer, you don't know if it's coming back or when. So, you know, I prefer, and most people I know prefer the term cancer veteran. Veteran, hmm. cancer veteran. Susan, have you heard that before? I have heard cancer veteran. Uh, some people object to that because they don't like the idea of fighting. Yeah, and battling I, I, and warfare. It, it makes it sound very military, and I and I get yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, along those same lines, I always kind of cringe when I hear that someone lost their battle to cancer. Right. Exactly. Again, you know, Why? It, it's like it somehow blames the patient, and they didn't fight hard enough, and we who are still alive did. I, I mean, it just, I, I just sort of shiver when I hear that because. Uh, you know, losing the the battle is in how you live. <laughs> you know, so people who have died of cancer didn't lose a battle. They they probably you know won a very dignified battle in how they lived out their end of their days. Leslie, so. thank you so much for your call. And let's go to Cynthia in Manhattan. You're on WNYC. Hi, Cynthia. Hey, Brian. Um, I had cancer surgery on February 24th, and I'm in recovery right now and will start chemotherapy on um, this coming Monday. But I have to tell you that by far the most offensive message I got from anyone, and a cousin heard this through the grapevine, and she wrote me an email, and she says, I know you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And I just had to write an answer, and, and it's a really nasty one. I said, oh, I'll be sure and give my doctor that message. Mm. And I didn't send it, but it felt so good to write it. <laughs> so just, you know, people who don't know what the blankety-blank they're talking about should just be your friend, hold your hand, and not tell you things that they do not know. Cynthia, thank you very much. Well, you know, Susan, after a call-in like this, everybody could be so afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing that they won't say anything to their friends with cancer. Yeah, I think that is a, that, that is a problem. But I think that what you're hearing is that cancer patients feel as if they're a magnet for platitudes. Um, it's, it, I, I was very struck by the, the call-in person who said that, uh, help, that people who gave her specific stories about people who did well with her type of surgery were very helpful. And I think that, that, is, that was a positive response. Uh, the opposite of that is, you know, my, he, my aunt had your kind of cancer and she died after three weeks. Wow. Ah. Uh, you know, That's worse so, than you'll be okay, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know... Um, I think encouraging stories about specifics that she, that person pointed out that were about her particular kind of cancer. So often people generalize, and they, and they think all cancers are the same cancer. 
Do you think there's something unique or different about having cancer for a long time, since that's the framing here, that cancer is becoming more something that you live with for extended periods of time? Is there something unique about having it that way when it comes to interacting with other people? I think that's a new, it's a new phenomenon. Uh, we used to talk about people who had um, terminal cancer or people who had beaten cancer. And now we're talking about people whose cancer is chronic, um, who return for rounds of chemotherapy or radiation or have a second operation, and who do live for 10 or 15 years. And I think that will lead to new discussions and new insights, um, yeah. new ways of talking. I also, um, before you go, I want to plug the fact that you're going to be part of On the Media's two-hour special on cancer and language and the media, airing this weekend and next. On the Media would love to hear how cancer affects you listeners and how you use social media in particular. So listeners, if you or someone close to you has cancer, is social media part of your coping strategy? Do you shun it? Do Facebook and Twitter provide opportunities to tell your cancer story, or do you consider that a private experience? Is figuring out how or how not to tell your cancer story a new and necessary element of dealing with a disease? On the Media would like you to record a message on a voice memo app on your smartphone and send it to otmwnyc at gmail.com, OTM for On the Media, otmwnyc at gmail.com, or you can just leave a voice message at 917-409-7830. That's 917-409-7830. Just make sure you give them your first name and where you're calling from, uh, and you'll hear Susan Garber and some of your call, uh, Gubar, and some of your calls on On the Media's two-hour special on cancer, language, and the media airing this weekend and next. And Susan Gubar, thank you very much for joining us today. I think you've contributed a lot to our Living Cancer series. Thanks very much. Support for Living Cancer is provided by the Susan and Peter Solomon Family Foundation. Additional funding for WNYC's medical science reporting is provided by the Iris and Junming Lee Foundation.